The following podcast is a recording of a webinar that took place on March 2nd, 2023, in partnership with the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurses Association, looking at obesity's impact on mental health. It was the third and final installment of a three-part content series that also included two previous podcasts. You can find those podcasts at medicalalleypodcast.org. So I think probably the most powerful thing we can do um, as providers is just ask people how what their experience of their body is to lead. And that prevents us from jumping in with any assumptions. The Medical Alley Podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. MentorMate empowers healthcare clients to deliver on their mission and transform the human experience through technology. For over 20 years, clients have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision, design innovative products, and build secure solutions while understanding the specific nuances of their industry. MentorMate's global team in the U.S., Eastern Europe, and Latin America helps clients in all sectors of healthcare transform their organizations. From Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies and commercial payers, to hospital systems, medical device manufacturers, and beyond. Learn more at mentormate.com healthcare. So hello everyone. Um, welcome to today's webinar on obesity's impact on mental health. Uh, my name is Erica Gunther, and I am looking forward to spending the next 45 minutes or so today with today's panelists and with all of you. So um, this webinar is the finale of a three-part content series focusing on obesity in partnership with the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurses Association. Uh, the first two parts of this series, um, obesity's impact on cardiovascular outcomes and advocacy for patients with obesity, are podcasts available now on the Medical Alley podcast at medicalalleypodcast.org. Additionally, thank you to Novo Nordisk for unrestricted grant funding for today's webinar. Um, thank you for being able to us to produce information like this. So I am looking forward to facilitating the conversation with our panelists today. Uh, my colleague, Tyler Mason, is also present running behind the scenes of this webinar. So if you have any technical issues, please let us know by reaching out to Tyler. Um, and if you have any questions for our panelists today, we have a Q&A feature, which we will be saving some time for at the end. So please list your questions there. We will be able to moderate them as they come in. And yes, please do that. Um, so without any more delay, I'm really pleased to welcome our three panelists, uh, Dr. Kirst Vincent with Care Counseling, Dr. Emily Jones with the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, and Lisa Maher with Unity Point Allen Hospital Cardiovascular Center. Um, I'm confident in saying that I am looking forward to today's conversation about obesity's impact on mental health, and I'd like to start with some introductions and hear a bit more about the focus areas for each of you. So, Kierce, would you like to start us off? I'd love to. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Kirst Finsand. I work as a licensed psychologist and associate director of clinical services at Care Counseling in the Twin Cities. Uh, my clinical interests sort of lie in ambiguous loss, trauma, and then working with people with eating disorder diagnoses um, and collaborating with other providers in the community to really work from a health at every size framework. Thank you, Kirst. And then Emily? 
Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Emily Jones. I work as an associate professor and I direct the PhD program in nursing at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. And I'm a nurse scientist. My clinical background was in labor and delivery and inpatient obstetrics. And my research for the last 15 years has been in the area of designing interventions through community-based participatory research that will actually reduce cardiometabolic risks after complications of pregnancy like gestational diabetes. And all of my work has been in partnership with indigenous communities, primarily in Oklahoma. Thank you, Emily. And Lisa. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Lisa Maher, and I'm a nurse practitioner at the Unity Point Health Allen Cardiovascular Center. Um, I've been a nurse practitioner here for the last 15 years, and I uh, see patients and treat patients with um, in general cardiology and also with underlying sleep-related disorders, but have also spent some time and um, focused in our lifestyle medicine clinic, which focuses on preventative medicine. Thank you all. So I'm really looking forward to how all of your perspectives are going to come together in today's conversation. Um, So as we were thinking about this content series and how we were going to wrap it up, we wanted to focus on this topic and obesity's impact on mental health because of the significant impact that we know that it can have. Um, Studies have found that individuals who are obese are more likely to experience depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and poor body image compared to those who are not obese. So as we start to have this conversation, what are some of the features of that two-way relationship uh, between mental health and obesity that we should be aware of as we start? And perhaps we can hear from Kirst first. I'd love to speak to this. So you're all going to hear me use different language than obesity today. Um, From a mental health perspective, we know how much language impacts people's experience of their body um, and self-esteem. So I'm going to use language like people living in larger bodies. Um, Others might echo that today, but just as a heads up to people. So um, I think the relationship from a mental health perspective is less about people's actual weight in correlation with their mental health and much more about stigma and bias, which we're going to talk about later today um, as well. But the way that society and medical providers can view patients um, living in larger bodies. And I think it's really helpful to also name that people who live in larger bodies and smaller bodies might have really healthy, uh, balanced relationships with food. And people living in smaller bodies might experience this. And so we're thinking about the connection between the two. It's really we want to examine people's relationships with food and support more intuitive eating processes um, rather than focusing specifically on weight loss and mental health perspective. Thank you, Kirst. Um, Another thing that I really wanted to touch on as well, and I'm interested in both Emily's and Lisa's perspective on this, is how some of these things don't really exist in a vacuum. So how are some of the ways that obesity and mental health interact with other chronic health conditions that we frequently talk about? Anyone would like to start? I can start um, with that. So when we think about um, looking from a cardiovascular standpoint, as far as obesity and um, cardiovascular disease, there's there's so much that goes into um, these conditions. So we're looking at chronic conditions such as hypertension. We're looking at hyperlipidemia or high lipids. We're looking at the combination with diabetes. And then two, a lot of times when we're focusing on those three conditions, 
We know that obesity plays a role, but a lot of times as, as providers or clinicians, we don't always necessarily touch on that other than to say, hey, you need to lose weight. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that gets left behind in, you know, kind of at the end of the visit. And it's kind of you're ushering them out the door. It, it's hard to to address everything that we need to address in a cardiovascular visit. So it's really important that we have um, other aspects too that that we can um, or other health partners that we can focus on and look at the whole entire um, person. Yeah, Erica, it's a great question. And I'll pick up right where Lisa left off, which is there's an opportunity here to offer whole person oriented care. And, you know, your statement about this doesn't occur in a vacuum makes me think about the life course perspective. None of our health occurs in a vacuum. There's multiple layers of influence for the health outcomes of any single one of us, anyone on this planet. So we've got the individual level, definitely, and individual behaviors matter. But then you've also got the interpersonal level, neighborhood and community level, society level, and then political and, you know, levels outside of, of the individual sphere for sure. And all of that comes to bear on um, mental health and what we might consider physical health, although we know really those two can't be disentangled um, because it's whole person health and those we're treating the entire person. So particularly, um, you know, my lens as somebody who cares for women during pregnancy, this life course perspective really matters because the health status that this birthing person has prior to pregnancy absolutely impacts the health that we, the health outcomes we witness during the person's pregnancy and following and all of the cardiometabolic um, things that might be under the surface sometimes um, become visible or unmasked during that pregnancy. So that comment, none of this occurs in a vacuum to me is exactly where this conversation should really start because there are opportunities. I'd love to build on that too, Emily, just to name that the way that the context surrounds the person can also contribute to sort of comorbid mental health conditions like anxiety, social anxiety, depression, when people are being perceived in a certain way um, that isn't necessarily positive in culture. Thank you. Thank you, all three. Uh, yeah, so Kirsten mentioned this and Lisa touched on it as well about that kind of moving into some of the more insidious factors of this relationship between obesity and mental health. And that is the social stigma and discrimination that people living in larger bodies often face. So these can lead to feelings of shame, embarrassment, like we've talked about. But what are some of the ways that this stigma really affect people living with obesity, the consequences on their physical and mental health, and even some of the ways that these stigmas show up in the healthcare settings? I can jump in and name that, first of all, when people show up in a healthcare setting and are living in a larger body, there may be assumptions, right? and stigma about what that means about their food. And those things aren't often true, but providers might start talking to them as if they are true. The other piece of this is that the assumption is that someone might be an overeater or a binge eater. And if there is disordered eating actually present, we all almost always see a cyclical relationship between binge behavior and restrictive behavior. And medical complications can be missed because of the stigma 
around binge eating and overeating that are actually associated with restrictions. Erica, I think from what I've read, it seems like weight-related bias is pretty endemic. Um, and this is coming directly from healthcare provider providers who self-report these um, you know, identified biases related to body size, um, you know, these assumptions, these uh unconscious at the beginning until you begin to dig and question. So this is coming, you know, the fact that we know weight-related bias is real, that's not only coming from the patient perspective, that's coming from providers who recognize this is happening. And so I think it's really important for us to realize that implicit biases may not be the cause of health disparities, but they certainly can perpetuate. And that's what I hear Kirst saying. Uh, If we're, particularly if providers are not aware that our ways of relating to patients and conversations can actually be putting up barriers that are getting in the way of maybe the right kinds of, or the best diagnoses for the patient, or perhaps the most appropriate plan of care for the patient. I think there's a lot of opportunity in realizing that our behaviors, our ways of communicating and connecting with patients could actually be unintended barriers um, that we're creating. And uh, Emily, I'd like to build on that. Um, Yesterday, for example, um, I was taking a um, CE course and it was talking about um, bias and it let um, you choose which category. And knowing this was coming up today, I chose the weight related one. And I was blown away at my own results in taking this. So I think you know, from a, from a health provider perspective, it's good because even if we don't think that we have them, you know, you take something that was, um, you know, intended to look and and to help you better yourself. And mine was strongly swayed and unfortunately the wrong direction. And, um, the, the other unfortunate thing is I think that we lack is as far as providers is we lack education in how to treat these patients. Um, it, I went through nursing school and my master's degree and my doctorate degree. And I will tell you the amount of time I spent on obese patients in in receiving formal education was zero, zero percent of the time. So my first experience was obviously treating patients um, actually in the clinic and looking that way. Now, I think that since I have gone through school, they've gotten better. And we obviously realize that this is a problem, but this also provides an opportunity for us to promote these types of education and promote um, that students get this this education in helping to treat the future population. Um, So I think it's it's very important that not only we understand our own bias, but also work to improve that. Thank you, Lisa. I hear us us kind of moving into the challenges that healthcare providers really have to navigate when working with patients in larger bodies. But before we do that, I do want to touch on in some of the ways that we can share, um, how does stigma compound with other social determinants of health and other inequities, especially for people from different racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic backgrounds? I'm wondering if we could start with Emily and hear a little bit about your experience working with Indigenous communities. Yeah, I would say unique um, in some ways to Indigenous communities, but also I'm sure this is a shared story among uh, many diverse peoples and families and communities, but 
specific to indigenous um, populations in the U.S., there was a, a time in history that we can point to and we can say U.S. policies related to food and related to commodity food programs are correlated with the rise or the um, incidents, you know, initial incidents of diabetes, for instance, in this population, certainly that correlates with rates of obesity. And now in the United States, indigenous communities have among the highest rates of obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular illness. So that is one very clear um, social policy. That's a determinant of health. Um, food policy that impacts individuals and families and communities. So that's one clear example. I think there's a lot of evidence um, that poverty and food deserts, you know, inadequate, just unavailable um, access to healthy foods undoubtedly um, shapes health outcomes and, and influences body size and the health related to that. So those things come to mind um, for me. Thank you, Emily. Would anyone else like to add? They see Kirsten muting. Yeah, I can jump in there. So thanks for that, Emily. And I think when we think about various social identities, especially related to race and ethnicity, we have to remember that categories of health status have been determined in the past in non-inclusive ways of different types of bodies and how different races and ethnicities, bodies are built differently. And so when we think about someone falling into one of those health statuses without considering those social identities, we can do a real disservice to patients um, in the medical context as well. Thank you. We can start moving. So we've already kind of touched on this about having to navigate those the challenges that healthcare providers do need to navigate when working with a patient. So going into that a little bit more, and especially holding um, in mind this piece that we just had about kind of the situational and structural barriers that exist, what are some more of these tensions or competing priorities that healthcare providers need to navigate um, and specifically calling attention to the stigma of it and why is it so difficult to engage with a patient in the first place? I'll start by addressing this. But um, I think this is an important question because I think that, at least from my perspective, there's always kind of this awkwardness as far as how to bring it up. You know, it's always easier if the patient feels comfortable to bring up their weight. But, you know, if you have to, you're assessing all these other things and you, know, you can look at medications and you can look at numbers and you can say, we're doing great on these. And then it's kind of that awkward pause or awkward silence. Do I bring it up? you know, are they, are they concerned about it? Are they not bringing those concerns to me? So I, I think it's, it's kind of hard to um, know how to bring it up. So I think that one of the most important things I would suggest is just establishing that good patient um, clinician relationship. And, you know, so that everybody feels comfortable um, bringing up this conversation and having this conversation, I think that can kind of help guide as far as what then we can do and how we can build upon that. So I, I think that's that's important always to, to touch on is, and, and again, I think that leads back to education. If we have, um, or we are better educated, then we can have kind of those crucial conversations and, you know, those hard conversations, because it does go to um, looking out for the overall health 
Um, we never want to think that, um, you know, from my standpoint, I never want them to think that I'm bringing it up um, in a negative way. But I, I want them to know that I think it's important, too, that we address that. Um, a lot of times, too, in reviewing articles and, and looking at my own in, implicit bias that's from the, from the survey yesterday, a lot of times we can view those patients as, as lazy or not, you know, not wanting to work hard, that they should be within a normal weight. And, and that's really important that we don't come in with, with that type of bias towards the patient, too. Thank you, Lisa. I, I know I'm hearing a little bit about like that education piece and not having the tools um, to really know how to engage with a patient well. And you also, I really appreciate you sharing that piece about your experience with this test and understanding your own biases. And I guess I'm wondering, especially hearing from Emily or curious about what are some of the other challenges that we, or assumptions, I guess, that we need to challenge, pardon, um, as we enter a room with a patient in a larger body? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think it reminds me of our blind spots. You know, that's maybe another word um, when we're talking about what are those unconscious biases we may actually be holding and not be aware of. But so blind spots are tricky because we don't know we don't have them, right? So to me, the place to start is a place of non-judgment. Um, and it's just like Lisa was saying, that relationship between the provider and the patient has to be built on trust. Trust is the bedrock of every uh, effective provider-patient relationship. And so that's developed over time. And it's developed because the, or, or that relationship is effective because the patient knows that the provider has the patient's best interests at heart. And so that that non-judgmental um, attitude comes across. And we all know that from a personal place, probably. We have probably all been in a relationship with maybe a healthcare provider, maybe someone else at some point where we knew when someone was not judging us and that it was a safe space. So for us to be able to create that is um, not easy, but probably critical to being able to actually meet people where they are and not make assumptions, but recognize going into that room um, that we don't know where that person is right now and that maybe their concern is not at all related to what our concern is for them at the moment. Thanks, Emily. Thanks to you both on that. I This is where I really love the health at every size framework too, because it really assumes that someone's desire to change their weight, shape, or size has nothing to do with their worth and goodness and value in the world. And I think if providers can enter the room with that framework in mind and to not assume that they want to do anything, right? Like, and that, that itself doesn't have anything to do with their value either. I think patients feel so much more held. And I was thinking, Emily, as you were talking, like, I know that experience, right? With a provider and to enter a room where that non-judgment is present is just such I am going to go ahead and pull out a little tidbit of conversation from one of our planning meetings, but something that Lisa had shared is that the limited amount of time that you have with a patient in a room with a patient can sometimes add to that intensity or need to push a topic that you may perceive as important, but isn't high on the patient's radar. So I'm wondering, I'd love to hear from Lisa on this about how you're kind of navigating that time challenge that it's not just health statuses that we're dealing with. It's also the, the 
kind of the system within which providers provide care. And I'm curious a little bit about, can you share some of how that factors in as a kind of a competing priority? Yeah, definitely time plays a role. Um, What I tell my patients, um, because I am notorious for running late to each appointment, is that just know that when you need my time, you know, more, I will spend that with you. So um, I, I tend to lead that when I walk in the room, I, you know, try to have a relaxed tone and, um, you know, let them know and sit and listen, um, that I am there to listen to them. And maybe again, what I wanted to focus on today is not their priority. And again, I let what their concerns are help drive, but I also need to, you know, address the important, um, other conversations in the room. So if their blood pressure is high, um, I'm, you know, going to touch base. Okay. How has your blood pressure been running at home? So again, yes, usually a typical visit, um, is anywhere from for a return visit is, is 15 to 20 minutes. But if I know that, Hey, we're running over that visit and we may need to do another follow-up to continue care that maybe I schedule them a little bit longer, Um, in the future. So I may go in with, okay, we're going to address this, this, and this, but I also like to let the patient drive that conversation because again, it's their concerns that are bringing them them in and it's their health. And I want to be their partner. And the other thing I like to do too, is within that visit, if I can see that they are wanting to talk more about a certain topic that maybe is not my specialty. So if I've addressed all their um, underlying conditions and I think somebody else would have more to offer them like a dietitian or um, some type of a counseling service or an exercise program, I will say, I have all these available resources. Would you like to learn more about them? And so that that's um, sometimes how I can approach and, and build upon a team approach with that. Thank you, Lisa. We have a next section that we can move into, but unless does anyone else has some more comments on this, move forward. Wonderful. So Kiris had kind of alluded to this earlier, but something that we had focused on in our planning sessions was the use of weight neutral language and the role that that has um, to make sure that you're not stigmatizing or judging individuals based on their body weight or their size. So at a very rudimentary level, Kirst, I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of weight neutral language that we could be using in a healthcare context. Absolutely. So I think probably the most powerful thing we can do Um, as providers is just ask people how, what their experience of their body is to lead. And that prevents us from jumping in with any assumptions. I also think we can ask people what language and what words they use to describe their body, not just their experience in their body. And then try to stay consistent with that type of language for the remainder of the visit and your relationship with them. Um, I often use that language I've been using throughout just around naming, you know, what type of body someone lives in. That's without judgment. It's merely a descriptor. And so I think that can be really helpful for providers too. And I want to name that it's so useful to use this language in talking about patients, even when we're not with them. I think that that's part of our care for patients. And so to talk with our colleagues if we're consulting our other providers about people with that weight neutral language as well, I think is really powerful. And it's going to impact 
how much of that bias you bring into the room with clients. So Lisa, hearing that, I'm curious about what kind of change would you have to make as a provider to start using that weight neutral language? And even what concerns do you have about it when you initially hear that? Yeah. Well, first of all, wouldn't everybody love to have a Kirsten there clinic with them to take into the exam room with them? That would be amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to do that, it almost has to be some type of initial, I think, formal training. You, you have to change your mindset um, uh, in going in. And again, that comes back to that, to that bias, that, um, that, we have and we are aware of or that we don't even know we have. Um, but I think that um, foremost or first and foremost would be some type of training for providers that um, you get updated on even yearly. You know, if it's you go through these annual education, you know, pieces on a yearly basis, because that framework can change. And, and just like everything else in health, we get updated. We take um, continuing education credits. It would be great to have something like that to be um, to get that in the forefront of your mind before going in. Sometimes in in clinic, you just kind of get into a groove and you just do the same things you've always done, and that can be really hard to change. and And that's something I think as a, a provider or clinician, we need to be willing to look at and to change our approach if if it's not doing what we need it to do. Yes, thank you, Lisa. Emily, I'm wondering if you um, if you heard the question, but just kind of hearing this approach to changing weight to weight neutral language, what is your perspective as a provider and what changes would you have to make yourself? Yeah, I really loved Kier's recommendation to ask individuals how they refer to their body. And I don't know why as a nurse, that just strikes me as mind-blowing as it does <laughs> because we talk to patients about all sorts of things, right? So that just the the way that strikes me tells me that I have some implicit biases um, because that seems so unnatural in some ways, even though almost nothing is off the table for discussion, um, usually, you know, in this patient-provider relationship. So I think that's... Um, that's a takeaway from me is the idea of um, how do you refer? First of all, how do you feel and think about um, your body? How do you refer? What words do you use? What words would you like me to use? Um, and also the sense of the ability to, and it probably is an art actually, and it's probably one of those things that you're only going to get better at with practice, but asking those non-judgmental questions, asking those open-ended questions and having um, almost the freedom to create the space for different conversations than you've traditionally had with patients. I think that's, um, for me, a real opportunity um, when it comes to working with um, research participants. And certainly, I believe that's the case for us as clinicians and providers. Thank you, Emily. And then, so I'm going to jump over to a Q&A question right now, because there's one that's very relevant. So, Kiers, I Ideally, we'd all have this training, formal training that Lisa mentioned, but while that is not available, do you have any favorite resources that you could recommend um, on weight neutral language for health practitioners? Yeah, there's um, a lot of information out there about health at every size, the health at every size framework. Um, there are some great books, but even if you just put in a quick Google search, there are some awesome research resources through their website that provides some language. 
Um, and also, I think, like you were talking about, Lisa, just helps sort of shift the mindset rather than just the specific language we're using. So that's probably where I would start. Right. All right. Thank you. And then, so you guys have already mentioned this about like that non-judgmental trust based relationship building, but just naming more specifically for like, I guess, just how essential of a role does this have? Why can changing to weight neutral language make a big impact for a patient and building that trust really trusting relationship? I can jump in from a mental health perspective. It's really what Emily was referring to earlier. It builds trust and it makes someone feel seen as a whole person. And I think that even makes people more open to resources. Like you were talking about, Lisa, around how can we gather some additional support around you? I think if we go in with judgment and non-neutral language, people get defensive. And they get the idea that you know more about their body than they do. So if we can use that neutral language, we get to put them in this expert role that makes them feel seen. Um, so from a mental health perspective, I would say that's sort of how it might impact the client experience. Thank you. Anyone else? And otherwise we can move ahead and start getting to some wrap up in Q and A. So, um, so again, we're coming close to today's, the end of today's conversation. I'm already seeing questions pop up in our chat. So if you have any more, please put them in. We can be answering, um, as time allows, but, um, again, we're already kind of touching on this, but are there any more steps that we haven't mentioned already that we can take to start increasing our understanding of this really complex relationship uh, between obesity and mental health? I know we've mentioned trainings, we've been talking about some resources and kind of self-reflection. Well, Erica, I will say in preparation for today, uh, it gave me a great reason to go just Google, like Kirstead said to see what's available out there, freely available to uh, clinicians who might be interested in learning more. And I found a lot. Um, I think Kirst just shared some resources um, about health at every size that I didn't even stumble upon yet. But I found there are toolkits out there, one that looks really good. And I encourage you all to go visit this website. And I don't have any connection to the University of Connecticut. So I can say that. This is the Yukon Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, and they have a weight bias and stigma toolkit complete with training modules, videos, handouts. Um, it seems like a really good place to start to just get um, some exposure. And there's also um, a lot of those kinds of tools that Lisa was talking about that we can just take a quick quiz and kind of see where we are personally and individually on these maybe unconscious lenses that we have. So that's, that's one resource I wanted to mention. Thank you, Emily. Lisa, I know we have one chat asking for the specific uh, resource that you used for the self-bias quiz. That would be helpful if you can share, but I can also see Kirsten muted, so. Oh, yeah. Um, the one I used was through um, Harvard, and I don't know if we can share it after the program, too. I could get the direct link, but it was um, it was through Harvard, and it, um, it went from everything on a gender and race and um, weight. So it was a whole lot of areas you could take and, and look at your um, implicit bias. But I can um, look for that, too, as we're as we're. Um, wrapping things up and put it. Can I type it in the chat then? 
I think if you you would be able to put it in the Q&A feature and that would be, okay. I think, visible for more people. Okay. Yep. I Wonderful. Do. Great. And then yeah, and just say that that's a really great resource and it's burned on thousands of people. So it's actually incredible how accurate um, that resource is on our um, I was also just going to name from a resource perspective. If you as a provider suspect that your client does have some disordered eating patterns going on, refer them for assessment in that domain so that if there are underlying concerns, those are addressed too from a mental health standpoint. And that, you know, people who are specifically trained in the treatment of eating disorders can help hold those people from the treatment perspective as well. Thank you, Kirst. Um, so this is this next question I have. It's the last one that I have prepared, but I do want to call attention to one of the, um, I guess it's more of an experience shared by someone talking about that focus on the only thing that a provider, from the experience of a patient who is overweight or living in a larger body and the provider only wanting to focus on their weight and not willing to engage with another topic. So the question I have is really how can we integrate mental health care and weight management services to ensure that people receive comprehensive care that address both issues um, and even what barriers to providers and patients need to overcome to address this? Um, I think that one thing we can use is um, the form of a team approach. There's not just one right person to, you know, see and address these concerns. I think we are stronger um, when we when we know we're not the best person to refer on to use it to use a team approach in a visit. When um, I ran our lifestyle medicine clinic, um, the visit with me not only consisted of time alone with me, but also time in a group with myself, um, a dietitian, um, a counselor, and um, an exercise specialist. And we could work off each other and really form and come up with a best plan. Um, so I really like when, when we can utilize each other in the field um, and when we understand that this may not be our strong suit and we know when to refer on or to ask for help um, ourselves and for this patient, because obviously we always want to do what is best for the patient in a whole. Thank you, Lisa. I would also name that when a provider enters the room, just asking patients, what do you make of the concerns you're having? Rather than sort of assigning that it might be due to weight, shape, size, just asking them, what do you think is attributing to this? Where are we attributing this concern to? Um, can be a really helpful way to sort of put the patient first and then add our two cents. Yeah, it reminds me of the four M's that um, are a model in the U.S. in terms of asking the question of what matters to you. Um, and that's a great place to start. I think that's the same question asked slightly differently than what Kirst just said. Um, but to start with those concerns. And then I would say if a patient, you know, is seeing a pattern of not being able to talk about anything other than weight and not getting anywhere, then I think there's probably another provider who would be able to meet the patient where the patient is. So for us as providers, um, I know there's probably many providers in this audience. Our goal is to not be that kind of provider that is so single-minded. We're not meeting the patient where the patient is. Um, and I think that we 
that's a service to our patients to be able to tell them, first of all, ask them, do you feel like you got the answers you needed today? Um, what What's next? What can we talk about the next time you're here? Thank you. And I can just kind of wrap around to, to talk about barriers to care being some of these social identities that we talked about earlier today. But I also think we can do sort of advocacy work in the community around some of these conversations too. We talk with our colleagues and, um, you know, the professional communities we're engaged with so that patients start getting experiences where things go better and feel better for them. Um, I think past experiences that people have in the healthcare system serve as huge barriers to them getting ongoing care because if they, they're not going to go if they feel like their provider's not going to see them or if they feel like their provider's judging them. So I think the, the advocacy work around it as well to address those barriers is really important. Yeah, thank you both for sharing that perspective because as this person shared in the chat, like it really relied on their own ability to navigate the healthcare system, which, and uh, we've been focusing on a pretty individual level, how to make change. But again, it is going to kind of be that more collective power that takes the group organizing that's so needed. So I'm going to have one more question that I think is interesting, but I do want to say that we are going to be able to collect the links gathered by our panelists, and we will include that in the follow-up email sending to attendees. So we will be able to get that information out to you. Um, one question that I want to touch on is they asked, how do you, do you recommend certain approaches based on gender or gender identity and really what more intersectional identities as a whole and navigating them? So I work with clients on the gender spectrum and at all points of the gender spectrum and body and gender is really, really hard. And I think we have to be really careful not to pathologize someone's experience of weight, size, shape, when it is really related to the way someone might experience their body as incongruent with their gender experience. And again, I think allowing clients, patients to define that for themselves, that's where that question around how do you experience your body comes in because there is such a spectrum um, and and experiences of bodies are so different um, that I think that's where some of that really neutral language comes in. Thank you, Kirst. All right. We are coming to the end of our 45-minute allotted time, so I want to say another huge thank you to our panelists for joining today. Uh, Thank you to PCNA for co-producing this content series with us. I hope that the conversations have been helpful for all of you. Um, Again, we will be sharing more information, uh, such as the links mentioned, in that follow-up email, so we will be gathering those and getting them out to you. But in the meantime, thank you to the panelists, thank you to the attendees, and And I really enjoyed the last hour or so that we were able to spend together. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks all. Thank you.